It didn't matter that time. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount. I want to welcome those of you guys joining us online and all of my friends in Fredericksburg, and of course, those of you in the Stafford campus today. I've got a few people I need to introduce you to before we dig in. In case you missed last week, our elders made a rather significant large announcement that the search team had nominated a candidate and they had accepted his nomination. His name is Adam Sauer, and they promised you that he would be introducing himself, and they are men of their word. And so Adam and Kristen would like to introduce themselves via this video. Hey everyone, my name is Adam Sauer, and this is my wife, Kristen. Hello. Over the last couple months, we've had the privilege to get to know the search team, the elder team, and some of the pastoral staff here at the Mount. And as we've gotten to spend time with them, it's become incredibly apparent to us that God has been and is continuing to do great things through the people here at the Mount. And so this week, we're in town with our family, our two boys, Emerson and Micah, and we're excited to spend time with you and begin to hear your stories as you get to know us a little bit. We're excited to hear and meet the people who make the mount the mount. So we will see you this week. So as promised, there you go. Give it up for Adam. Uh, I think he lands sometime this evening, and then he'll begin meeting with different groups. Um, I'm not sure who and when, because I'm, I mean, I'm not that great with details. Can we just be honest? They told me. I said, I'm never going to remember all that. But I will remember where you guys can find it the lead pastor search page on the website, social media channels, and your email. So he's gonna fly in, meet with various groups this week. He's gonna preach next week, so you'll get a chance to hear him. Then he'll fly back, and there'll be a couple. There you go. There'll be a couple town hall meetings, and then the vote will happen on the 25th. And that's where you guys come in. The, the search team and the elders, they've gotten us to this point. Now it is time for your participation. Get in, meet him, introduce yourselves, talk to him, learn him, let him learn you so that you can be involved in the process. Now, I know I gave you a bunch of information and a bunch of dates that you will most likely forget and check all those channels to remind yourself, but I promise you the next person that I am going to bring up, you will not soon forget. May I introduce to you, please, Miss Imani. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Miss Imani, why don't you tell everybody what you do for us here? Yes. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Imani Stokes, and I have the privilege of serving as our Kid Men Volunteer Director. Yeah. I love it. And anybody who knows me knows that I am passionate about helping people find their place and space Very to passionate. serve here at the Mount. Very yes. passionate. Yes, very. Very passionate. So you're here to talk to us about Summer Splash. What is Summer Splash? Yes, and before I talk about Summer Splash, there's something I want to do. If you serve on a Stafford, on a Fredericksburg, or El Monte campus, could you please serve, stand up, whether you serve anywhere, anywhere, please stand up. Please stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Yes. Woo. I want to say thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you you get a car thank you 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 yes i want to say thank you thank you yes unless you no nobody's getting a car so we have this amazing campaign right and just take one step back we couldn't do what we do change stafford Change Fredericksburg, 
change our communities around the world without you. So when I say thank you, like I really mean thank you. Now, Summer Serve, Summer Splash, is an opportunity to welcome everybody who is not serving right now to come on board and join the mission and the vision of the Mount. You can serve for one week, you can serve for one month, or you can serve throughout the summer. Come and find a place, join a team, and make a difference. Now, grab a friend. If you don't have a friend, come make some friends. Grab your husband, grab your wife, Grab your children, children, grab your parents, and come and join us. All right. So for anybody that heard that and was like, you know what? That inspired me. I would like to be a part of that. What are their next steps? Where, where do they need to head? Two simple things. You can pull out your phone and look at themount.org and sign up there. Or I always like to say I'm a peopler and I love peopling. You can meet me right outside these doors and I'd love to talk to you, answer any questions that you have and help you get on board. Excellent. Well, yes. thank you, Imani. Thank, thank you. For you. <laughs> Unforgettable, as promised. Uh, so with all of that energy, with the energy the worship team brought us and with the energy Miss Imani brought us, I think we're just going to take a moment and pray so that I can compose myself. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us. But most of all, we thank you that you are who you say you are. We thank you that you're the greatest good that ever existed. And we thank you that you have handed us a great big purpose to which we can give our lives. We ask that by the, the reading of what you have written that we can know you, that we would not only know you as a result of today, but we would know ourselves and as a result, know our, this great purpose that you've given us. We ask right now that you bless this time. And we be rewarded with nothing short of radical transformation and the life-changing power that alone you have. We ask these things in the Son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to come primarily out of John 13. Now we're going to bounce all over the place to begin with. But if you want to, if you are somebody that follows along, you can go to John 13 now. But while you're doing that, I have one more person that I want to introduce you to. May I please introduce you to Mr. Mario Diaz. Bam. All right. So Mario does worship at El Monte. He speaks at El Monte. He does tons of things behind the scenes that nobody would ever see. But I would contend that perhaps the greatest thing he's ever done for us is this smile in this video. I mean, look at that. Look at that. That, to me, screams, I think he missed his calling. He was born to be a 90s sitcom dad. Look, look at that. Now, for some of you, most of you got that, but for some of you, you were born like three years ago, so you have no idea what it's like to look at a 90s sitcom, Dad. So let me fill you in. Uh, in the 90s, sitcoms worked a little differently. They were funny, they were entertaining, but about every fifth episode, you had to deal with a very heavy topic. This was the 90s, so this had to happen. And so you could envision your, your 90s dad was really kind of involved in these episodes. And they would go something like this. You're 14 years old, and you really want to go to that concert. So in the 90s kitchen, you walk to your 90s dad, Mario Diaz, and you say, Dad, I really want to go unsupervised to this concert. And the dad would go, man, I... I just can't do it yet. I'm not there. There's so many things you don't understand. There's so many things. It's still my job to protect you from these things. We're just not there yet. And so you, after he went to bed, would sneak out. And you would get in your friend's car, 
And you guys would drive to the concert, dancing, laughing, all those things. And then red and blue lights would appear in the rearview mirror. And you'd get pulled over. And unbeknownst to you, your friend's driver's license was suspended. And now you're ending up at the police station, which is scary, but it's going to be okay. You know why it's going to be okay? Because Mario Diaz is your dad. <laughs> and you're going to use your one phone call to call your 90 sitcom dad. And he's going to come down. And he's not going to be happy, but he's going to come down. But he's going to be understanding. And for some reason, the policeman is going to let him in your cell where you happen to be alone in there. And Mario Diaz is going to sit next to you. And you guys are going to have a heart to heart. And you're going to tell him your truth. Dad, I just feel so constricted by these rules that you put on me. And I'm just trying to live my life and be independent and enjoy life. And he's going to look back at you with all the understanding in the world. And he's going to say, I know, son. But there's still things you don't know. And I'm your dad. It's my job to make sure that things like this don't happen. And you guys are going to share that moment. And it's all going to be okay because Mario Diaz is your dad. And then right at the right time, the policeman is going to kind of unlock the cell. Why did he lock you in there? I don't know. But he's going to come unlock it, and you guys are going to walk out. And as you're walking out, you're going to say something like, so I'm not grounded anymore, right? And Mario Diaz is going to look at you and go, oh, you're still grounded for two months. And you're going to smile and give him a hug and say, I love you, Dad. <laughs> and Mario Diaz is going to look back at you and say, all right, two weeks. And then the audience will laugh and the credits will roll and all the world is right. Because that's what the function of the 90s sitcom dad was. These are the episodes in which he prevailed. This was the cornerstone of his existence, was the, the heavy episodes. And the language of, of our faith is family as well. And our dad is the cornerstone of our faith. Our language is brothers and sisters. Our language is gathering, because families gather, right? We're gathering right now as a family. But as good a, a 90s dad as Mario is, our dad is a little better. And by a little better, I mean a lot better. Like, our dad is the greatest dad that ever existed. It's incomparable. Language fails to describe our dad, because our dad does things that nobody else can even possibly claim to do. Our dad creates by talking things into existence. He says, waters separate, and they listen. He says, sky separate. I don't even know how that works, but it happens. He grows things with his words, and then he created us, and he handed us his perfect creation. And then we decided we wanted a plan that was not our dad's plan. He said really smart things to us, like don't lie to each other. And we said, ah, I've got a different plan. How about we lie to each other? <laughs> he said really smart things, like don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. It hurts people's feelings when you do that, and they don't like it. And we said things like, yeah, but I really, really, really want what that person has. And so we took things that didn't belong to us. He said really smart things, like be faithful to your spouse who you promised to be faithful to. And we said, is that a for sure thing or is that some gray area there? And he said things like treat people how you want to be treated. 
And we said, yeah, probably not going to do that either. And in doing all those things and in not listening to our good dad, we scarred this world. The world as we experience it now is not the world that we were handed. The world that we were handed was perfect and good and harmonious. And there's, that in no way describes the world in which we currently live. And it's because we destroyed perfection. We destroyed or corrupted creation. And as a result, we stand correctly judged by our dad who is the only being that has the right to judge. And he has correctly said, you have deviated from the plan, you have done wrong, and you have separated yourself from me, the greatest good that has ever existed. But this is where our dad stepped in again. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come down here, unwilling that we would be separated from him by what we have done. Jesus came down, was born, lived a life where he grew in stature and wisdom, and walked willingly to his death. The penalty for corrupting creation, which was rightfully ours, he paid on the cross. He was put in the ground, but he did this thing where he refused to stay dead. And in coming back from death said, I am God, and I have paid the price for your disobedience. If you believe that I am who I say I am, and if you believe that I have done what I say I have done, then you are no longer separated from God, and we are all a family again. And because he did what nobody else can do, and because he has done what nobody else can even fathom doing, we have trouble describing who he is. We have trouble even putting to words what it means to talk about his power, his love, his grace, and his intelligence. But nevertheless, we try. And one such attempt is found in Revelation chapter 5, where the author tells us about an angel that is scouring the galaxy, trying to find the one who is worthy to open the scroll. And the author is weeping because this scroll needs to be opened, and there is none that is worthy to open it. No one on the face of creation can open it but Jesus. So the lamb appears, the lamb that is Jesus appears, and this is how heaven and earth rejoice. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. They sing this song to the only one, the set one of one, set in a category by himself because he is the only one that can do what needs to be done. Jesus Christ is the only being in existence that did something that reaches all the way back to the past and affects everybody in the past and reaches all the way into the future and has affected everyone that will ever live. No one else can claim that. No one else can say that they have done something that goes and spans boundaries and time periods. Only Jesus. And this is why we say we have the best dad. This is why we say it is indescribable because the way that we attempt to describe is to compare resumes, right? That's how we know who the greatest is. The greatest hitter has the best batting average or maybe the most home runs. The greatest leaders, we compare uh, unemployment numbers or deficits. We take out people's resumes and we say, well, who's the greatest? Well, this is where words fail our God, because who has a resume that even begins to compete with that? Who has enough wisdom that they can advise our Father? 
Words fail, which is why he's probably best depicted in songs and poems and paintings. Because these, the artist's lens has a way of capturing what words often leave unsaid. And so we, we turn to a poet in the Psalms that attempts to capture the essence of our father when he writes, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounds, saying our God is so empathetic and so loving. He sees your pain and he responds. He's not a distant dad. He's a loving dad that comes to you in your hour of need. He sees your broken heart. He puts the pieces back together. He sees your wounds and he desires for you to be healed. So he acts with his great power and his great wisdom. He acts on your behalf. Then he tries to tackle his intelligence and power when he says he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. He counts the uncountable. And not only does he count the uncountable, he names them and remembers all of their names. I have five children. Sometimes I go through three names before I get the right one. It's difficult to make these comparisons because he's so much smarter. So the psalmist tries to write at the end, our Lord, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. He just says, hey, there's no way to measure it because we can't play the comparison game in it. There's no number that I can give you that compares to how intelligent he is. Words fail at describing our dad. And so the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in the, Corinthian, in, the, in the Colossians, just gives up trying to compare. He just goes nuts. He just starts firing off stuff. And he writes, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He just says, Jesus is the glue that holds the entire fabric of reality together. He says, it doesn't matter, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, boundaries. Jesus is the thread that keeps the fabric, the blanket of reality from falling apart. You and I, we disappear tomorrow, people are sad. There are people in our sphere that feel that loss. Jesus never exists, and everything that we call real ceases to exist like that. He is both creator and savior. Words fail when we talk about our God. Words fail when we talk about our dad. He's the indescribable because he is infinite and we are finite and we struggle with infinity. And you might be thinking, well, I can define infinity. Every four-year-old can define infinity, something with no beginning and no end. You're right. We can define it, we cannot understand it. The best definition, and you might want to hold on to your chairs for this one, the best definition of infinity that I have ever heard goes like this. I want you to imagine in your mind a string of marbles that is infinite. It goes forever forward and forever backward. You can close your eyes if it helps. Imagine an infinite line of marbles. Then imagine that I took away half of them and created another line. Here are some things that are true about what I just said. That I subtracted, uh, subtracted half of the first line and didn't actually subtract anything because the line is still infinite. 
And not only did I take away half of what was in the first line, I created a new line underneath it that is equal to the line that I just took half of its stuff away from. Exactly. How can all of that be true? But yet it is. And this is why words fail. Because we are finite beings that can only measure things through comparison and resumes. And our God is immeasurable. Our God's wisdom is unquantifiable. His power is indescribable. And it's with this in mind that we are ready to dig in to John chapter 13 as promised. This is his final night with his friends. His disciples are gathered. They're about to take the Passover meal. And he knows that his time is coming. He knows that this evening he'll be taken to die for you and me. And this is what John records. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We forget that these are his friends. These are his followers, to be sure, but these are also his friends. They've traveled around three years together, three years worth of meals, three years worth of knock-knock jokes, three years worth of time spent, Three years worth of tragedies, three years worth of sorrows, watching friends die, three years of watching this guy named Jesus do things they never thought possible. And they've bonded. And their time is coming to an end. And you guys, we know that when time is coming to an end, when we can see the end, it gets that much more valuable. We try to compress a lifetime worth of things into those last moments. Because once we can see the end of time, theoretically, it's this resource that we, we never grow out of, that we always have enough of. But when we can see the ending, how valuable does time become? And we can see the ending. And so he's going to give them what is on his heart. He knows this is the end, and he is going to give them what he most passionately wants them to know. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So on his last night, Jesus performed a ritual that would have been very well known in first century Palestine, but not very well known to us. As you guys have discerned, they got everywhere by walking on dusty road in sandals. So when they arrived at their destination, their feet were fairly filthy. This would be foreign to us because that's not how we work. If you walk into my house and I tell you to take off your shoes and start washing your feet, you're going to kick me, and justifiably so. You never have to worry about that happening at my house, though, because I will never offer to wash your feet. But this would have been a well-known custom at the time. When you went to somebody's house to spend time or recline, you took the time and energy to get there. You didn't just call an Uber. You didn't drive five minutes across the city. You had to plan it. You had to execute it. And the host, gracious in your effort, would then wash your feet for you, except it wouldn't be the host. At least not most of the time, it would have been the servants because hosts don't wash feet. 
servants wash feet. And not the chief servants, because I can imagine how this, this was a job usually reserved for the lowest servants, because you can kind of in your mind picture how this works. The chief servant or the servant in charge of the other servants goes to number two, hey man, you got to wash feet, people are coming over. Number two says to number three, hey, guess what? You got to wash feet today, people are coming over. Number three goes to number four, guess what you're doing today? Number four turns and there is no number five. So number four is washing feet. This was for the lowest servants because it's considered one of the lowest jobs. And you can feel the tension in the room, especially Peter, because this power dynamic is way off. This is not how this is supposed to work. So Jesus comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You can tell something's off right from the jump. Peter's like, nah. And Peter's had his feet washed before. He's traveled. He's been to people's house. This is not unknown to him. And he says, Lord, what are you doing? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. He says, unless you let me serve you, you have no part of me. Because you don't understand what's about to happen, Peter. I am about to go die for you. And because I die for you, you will be reconciled to God. You will know God again. If you draw this line and say, I cannot serve you, you don't understand the line that you're drawing. Peter, you must allow me to serve you if you are to have a part of me. But Peter doesn't like this because there's something wrong with this, at least in Peter's mind. He's looking at a guy that can turn water into wine. He's looking at a guy when he says, hey, sick person, be healed, He's healed. He's looking at a guy that has literally told people that have never walked, get up and walked, and they've done it. He's looking at a guy that he's seen walk on water. He's looking at a man that he says is the weighted Messiah of Israel sent by God to cleanse the world of its wrongdoing. And he says, there's no way this guy should wash my feet. This is wrong. So in his mind, he's like, okay, let's come up with a, a plan that we can both live with. I can't live with you washing my feet. You say I have no part in you unless I let you serve me. So let's come up with a new plan that we can have peace with. He says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Let's make a new custom. I can't have you, creator and savior, down there washing my dirty feet. How about we do my whole body and then we've got this new custom where I don't have to look at you as a servant. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. He says to his followers, he says to his friends, he says to the people that he loves, do you understand what just happened? Because this is it. He knows this is one of the last conversations. He says, pay attention because I am doing something very important, something that will redefine the rest of your lives. Do you understand what you just saw? And then he elaborates. You call me teacher and Lord, 
and rightly so, for that is what I am. He says, you've spent enough time with me to know me. You know my resume. You know I'm one out of one. You have correctly looked at the miracles that I've done. You've listened to the wisdom that I come out of my mouth. You've watched me destroy the culture of the day. You've watched me proclaim that God is real and that God is alive and God is working. And you know I am something more than human. You call me Lord and you call me that correctly. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I have redefined what you think about what it means to serve and be served. If I, the greatest being that has ever existed, if I, both creator and savior, will get on my knees and do the job that nobody else wants to do, do the thing that is reserved for the lowest of the low, do the thing that even servants do not want to do, then guess what your role is as well? If you say you follow me, this is what it looks like to follow me. To metaphorically wash one another's feet. He continues, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He says, now that you know how power is to be leveraged, now that you have seen the creator and savior doing what he does, I expect you to do it. And you will be blessed if you do. And this is one of the many ways that the economy of heaven is preferable to the economy of earth. Because this is not something that we aspire to. This is something that we try to accumulate power and influence so we can avoid. We want to have a high enough station that we can tell people to do these gigs. But our Lord and Savior modeled that we, our family, should be doing these things. We aspire to be the greatest. We aspire to be the champion. We aspire to wear the name tag that says boss. But all that does is cause competition within our family. And there is to be no competition in our family unless it's the competition to see who is greatest in serving. Because the competition can't be who's the fastest or who's the strongest or who's the quickest or who's the smartest because that role is already taken, my friends. It's taken by the one that we call dad. There is no competition in these ists. We are not ist anything. And even if we delude ourselves into thinking we are, think of how terrible it is that we want to be called champion when there can only be one champion. We want to be called greatest when there can only be one greatest. We want to be called boss when everybody has a boss. There can only be one when we live out this economy, but when we live out our family calling to serve, each one of us is capable. There's no bottleneck at the top as we compete for resources. Every single one of us can live out our calling to serve. Every single one of us can answer the question, who has God put in my life 
that he is calling me to serve. I guarantee you there's someone in your neighborhood that needs their grass cut or their gutters cleaned. I guarantee you there is somebody that's fallen ill and cannot do it for themselves. I guarantee you that on your baseball team, there is someone that needs you to put your arm around them and tell them you love them. I guarantee you in your office building, there's someone who's struggling financially. I guarantee you in your classroom, there's someone who feels alone. And I guarantee you that is far more important to our Lord and Savior than whatever you're accumulating. I guarantee it. Because for us, serving is in our DNA. It flows from our dad. It's who we are. We are never more like Jesus Christ than when we are on our knees serving the ones that he loves because he tells us, I detest what you people find valuable. I detest what you chase because what I love are the people you ignore while you're chasing it. I love you. I bled for you and I bled for everyone you come in contact with. It's not a question of should we. Jesus doesn't leave us that option. He says, you will either obey me or you will disobey me in this regard. Guess which one is preferable? We come up with all the excuses. I don't have time. I come from the South. We lived in Georgia. We don't actually ever tell anybody no. You ask me if, if I can help you move on Saturday, I'm not gonna tell you no, I'm gonna tell you I don't have time because that's much nicer than telling you no. We all know who, who needs to be served. We all have the resources. This transcends fiscal limitations. You don't have to train for this stuff. You just go help people. You don't need training for this. It transcends every excuse. Unless we delusionally think we are too good to help the least of these, our Father, our Savior has given us a perfect example of what it is to humble yourself. Because I think half the reason we don't do it is we love the spotlight. We love, if, if I can't post it, I don't wanna do it. We love the spotlight. You guys have heard me rail on this stuff before that we think the most important part of the church is whoever stands behind this podium. And we think the most important are what happens under these lights or all the things that are visible. But I promise you the most important things, the things that are closest to the heart of God are the things that go unseen. There's a meme that's circulating that I think captures this brilliantly. Maybe you've seen it. There's a person that walks into a tattoo artist and says, let me get a tattoo that shows that I'm a godly man and I love to serve my church. And the tattooer says, I got it. Here's a tattoo of stacking chairs. Because in every church in America, there is someone who stacks chairs. And it's usually one or two people because it's not a very popular job. When I walk off this stage today, I'll shake hands out there, I'll see you in Target. We'll say, great job, that was fantastic, oh, blah, 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 blah. If I don't show, all I did was read verses today. That's it, God wrote it, I just read it. If I don't show up, they find somebody else to speak. If Rob Benson doesn't show up, we cancel church, because you got nowhere to sit. I would wager dollars to donuts 
that from the beginning of time, the Benson family has stacked and unstacked more chairs than any family in the history of humanity. And nobody knows their names. Nobody but our dad. Do not waste the opportunity to do good to those that our father loves. So we finish with the same question that Jesus asked. Do you realize what I just did? Do you realize what it means to serve those who I love? Not just Sunday morning, because this is a launching pad. This isn't the landing. We launch from here and we go serve humanity, which is still the best way that people will know him. We are quickly being known as a people that is condemning. It says, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. And there are times to call out wrongs. But that should be what we are known of secondarily. We should first be known by our good deeds because Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that is our calling card. That is how we call people out of darkness and into light. Not by saying, you're in the darkness, but by saying, I know the light. And by letting my life reflect that. This is who we are. And we are never more like our Father than when we're on bended knee, washing the feet of the people that he loves. If you have any questions about our dad at either campus, there'll be people up here that would love to talk to you about it. Be bold, take a step, ask more questions about this God that we call dad. Have your life transformed so that we no longer see people as a means to an end, but as God's beloved creation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being patient with us. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you that you served us. We thank you that when we were trapped in darkness, trapped by the wrong that we've done, destroying your perfect creation, that your infinite power reached back down and pulled us back and will restore this creation one day. We're thankful that though we separated ourselves from you, you were unwilling that that would be the arrangement and you drew us back and you called us back and we get to call you dad. I ask right now that you put in us a heart that burns for your creation, that burns for the people that both know you and have yet to know you, that we can go be the people of light that serve and we can be known by the good deeds that we do in your name, changed forever by what Jesus has done and powered with your grace through the Holy Spirit you've given us. We ask these things in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.